Abby thought I was going to hurt her, but I would never do something like that. He was really scaring me when he blocked the door. And I wanted to scream for help, but I was so afraid of upsetting him, I didn't want to anger him anymore. I was totally willing to forgive her, forgive her for everything, for being out with that guy. It didn't matter. I love Abby. I, I was never going to leave her. Why can't Will just get over Abby and move on with his life? Why can't he seem to control himself? I'm Allison Becker, and this is Obsession, a podcast co-produced by Focus Features and LA Times Studios and funded by Focus Features in support of the film Greta. In our first two episodes, we explored unrequited love that turns obsessive and what could lead us to form these pathological relationships with others, even strangers. What's happening in our brains to trigger these obsessive feelings, especially the intense feelings of love? Are the chemicals in our brains making the calls for us? Are these thoughts uncontrollable? Many believe they are, and that these obsessions actually complicate their ability to love. 32-year-old New Yorker Daniel has continuously agonized over unrequited loves. In an attempt to understand what he's feeling, he sought out the help of online communities, like the one run by Dr. Limerence, who we heard from in episode one. Daniel has never had a real long-term relationship. They've all been fantasies constructed in his head. Here's Daniel. It's like a jackhammer. I think about him constantly. It doesn't take a lot to kind of set off this physical, emotional response to any sort of proximity to this guy. Everything leads back to him. I have, I have like memorized every single conversation we ever had because all I could think about was this guy. I was applying to grad school early in the year and I could not focus on the things that I needed to do because all I could think of was this guy. It's utterly debilitating. I had a nervous breakdown. I mean, I could not function. So what's going on with Daniel? Why is he so fixated? To help us make sense of it all, we turn to some medical and scientific experts like Dr. Alexandra Katahakis, the clinical director of the Center for Healthy Sex here in Los Angeles and author of several books on sex and love addiction. The attraction is, you know, just an immediate jolt to the system. If I see you across the room and I start to have a fantasy or idea about you or I'm activated, you know, by way of chemistry, I may start to make a whole story about you and who you are to me. This notion of limerence implies a a sort of a romantic love. And with that naturally comes obsession. With someone who's obsessed, the minute they meet someone, they're in love. They're picking out the wedding china in their head. They're imagining what it would be like to have that person's last name or for that person to be their wife or girlfriend. And it doesn't matter what that person does that is off or even egregious. They will keep pushing the fantasy. So they're not really in love with the person. They're in love with the idea of it. 
that obsession arises as a result of these neurochemical changes and there's a massive dopamine blast it's excitatory you know emotionally physically sexually and so that feels like the one it's like a cosmic experience but that cosmic experience is what people who are obsessed and who attach pathologically are constantly seeking like daniel pj also has a habit of falling madly in love with unavailable men He knows it's not healthy, but he can't stop himself. His first big love hit him in college. The guy was straight, but PJ couldn't admit there was no future for them. Like Daniel, the feeling of being in love was more exciting than the reality of being in a mutual loving relationship. PJ is now 35 and living in Southern California. There was a college roommate of mine um, I was 18, uh, we moved in together, and we would like always hang out in his room, we would like just get really high and enjoy each other and like laugh, we like the same music, Bob Marley was everything to us, and good like brother relationship was growing, and like we lived together for like two years, so it was like we were, got really, really, really close. He is, uh, from what I know, he is completely straight, and um, and I call, consider myself a homo flexible, but you know, it's just a fluid situation. I'm here for the love. But he was curious on his end of, you know, taking it to uh, the friendship that we have to a sexual level. And so I'm thinking of this, like, future, like, oh, this is going to be great. He's not on that level because he's thinking, like, okay, I'm just trying to get to a point where now I'm experimenting with guys. Like, this is a whole thing for me that's in my head. For years, PJ fantasized about his former roommate, despite knowing in his heart and his mind that they'd never have an actual romance. The pattern repeated itself over and over again for years, until he met another unattainable man, this time at work. He was married and had a kid. I knew from the beginning, like, nothing could happen. But um, I was working at a paint shop, and he was a new guy, and I came in there, just big, buff, Brazilian, beautiful man. And we immediately just, like, clicked. And it was, like, just boys going out for drinks after work. Just kicking as boys do, but I, as time went on, I was just like, man, like, I keep looking at you, you're so beautiful. I was so obsessed with him for that time. I was like, I changed the, the porn I watched. I was just watching nothing but Brazilian porn after that. Everything was, like, charged. Like, my sexual tension was high. Like, my, my mind was alert because he was smart, so I was, always had to be on my P's and Q's. And, like, everything, like, the way I looked, it was sharp because he was always dressed sharp. Like, I was just charged with everything when I was around him. And so, like, so I was obsessed with him. <laughs> like, it was so real at the time. So real at the time that I just, like, I kept going. We just kept hanging out. But, like, it was never expressed. And, like, I had to move away so that he was not in that situation. And, like, to a point where it was like, you know, I need to cut you out of my life. You are married and you have a child. Get away from me. PJ knows he's got a problem. He understands what he needs to do to fix it, but he just can't break the cycle. Chemically speaking, why is that? Dr. Helen Fisher can break this down for us. She's a biological anthropologist and senior research fellow at the Kinsey Institute. She's also the chief science advisor to Match.com and the author of six books on love. In 2005, Match.com came to me and asked me, why do you fall in love with one person rather than another? And uh, I created a questionnaire that's been taken by 14 million people in 40 countries that studies the biology of personality to try to understand why you fall in love with one person rather than another. I began to think to myself, people will say, we have chemistry or we don't have chemistry. What does that mean? Are we naturally pulled, biologically pulled to some people rather than others? I've been studying the brain for many years, and I came to realize that we've evolved four very broad styles of thinking and behaving linked with the dopamine, serotonin, testosterone, and estrogen systems in the brain. 
So I created a questionnaire to see to what degree you express the traits linked with each one of those uh, chemical systems. And then I watched among 14 million people who's naturally drawn to whom. Most of the systems in our brain are not linked to personality traits. They're busy keeping our hearts beating, making our eyes blink, important things like that. So let's break this down even further. How do these four brain chemical systems influence who we are, what we do, how we live and love? Let's start with dopamine. What's that doing to us? And the dopamine system uh, gives you energy, optimism, motivation, and focus. But the traits linked with the dopamine system, and I call these people explorers, they tend to be risk-taking, novelty-seeking, curious, creative, spontaneous, energetic, uh, mentally flexible. Okay, what about serotonin? People who are very ex- uh, expressive of the serotonin system, I call these people builders, these people are traditional and conventional. They follow the rules. They respect authority. They like plans and schedules. Um, they're often very religious and concrete thinkers, and they are drawn to people like themselves. This is truly fascinating. What about testosterone? People who are very expressive of the testosterone system, I call directors. And they're analytical, logical, direct, decisive, tough-minded, tend to be skeptical. They need rank. They'll fight for rank. And they're good at what we call rule-based systems, everything from engineering to computers to math to um, architecture uh, to mechanics. And last but not least, the fourth brain system, the estrogen system. What's going on there? I call these people negotiators. They tend to be imaginative, intuitive. Um, They see the big picture. They they see uh, complexity. They're very good uh, with people. They tend to be socially skilled. They're good at reading posture, gesture, and tone of voice. They're trusting and they're empathetic. So we are all a combination of all four of these broad styles of thinking and behaving, but we express some more than others. And those naturally draw us towards some partners rather than others. All right, this is starting to make sense. But now I've got another question. Does one of these four brain chemical systems make you more susceptible to becoming love addicted? Like, could you see a difference if you do a brain scan? Dopamine is made in a tiny little factory near the base of the brain. And then it sends dopamine to many brain regions. And it gives you that craving, that obsession, that focus, that seeking, that wanting, um, uh, that is associated with all motivation. I think an awful lot of people who are expressive of the dopamine system, they're risk takers. They can be romance junkies. I think there are also attachment uh, junkies, people who just can't leave a bad relationship because they feel uh, it's their duty to stay and, and they just can't break their promise. I think there are people who are sort of, you know, when they have a bad love affair, they will turn violent and start stalking or even commit suicide or homicide. Some motivations are very good, but some can be very pathological. I mean, if you're madly in love with somebody who's told you very clearly that that they're not interested or they're not ready, you may be suffering from a love addiction if you just keep pounding uh, to win them back. I and my colleagues have put um, 15 people who are rejected in love into a brain scanner, and we found activity in a lot of brain regions, but one brain region called the nucleus accumbens, it's a brain region that becomes active when you have any addiction, but different people are going to express their addictions in different ways. 
Okay, so dopamine is like the loud, obnoxious guy at the party in your head. This is helpful information for sure, but how this becomes an addiction is still a mystery. UCLA psychiatrist Dr. Timothy Fong is an addiction specialist, so we turn to him for some clues. One of the most common questions we get in addiction psychiatry is what is happening inside the brain when someone is going through the process of an addiction or emotional pain or conflict from a behavior that looks like an addiction? To be honest, we really don't know, but we are clearly understanding that when it's an addiction, that the brain is, number one, built very differently, and number two, it responds very differently to natural rewards. The real fundamental question is, why is it that some people can handle these rewarding behaviors and activities very well and go on with their life and grow and develop, while others get stuck in a apparent cycle of of self-harm? Uh, harmful consequences themselves, poor judgment, impulsive behavior, and they keep doing things that seemingly from afar make no sense, but actually, in their mind, make sense. I had a patient who described this issue where um, he's craving wanting to be married, and he's gone through the online dating, he's tried uh, kind of classic methods, and he really struggles. What he's left with is the online dating experience via Tinder and things like that. But what he's finding is that these are very, quote, transactional. They're, they're not about intimacy or connection. They're about sex. So I'm thinking about what's happening inside his, his brain as he's reaching out to these women. He's craving and wanting the things we all want, connection, love, relationships, uh, consistency, safety. But what he's getting is pure, unadulterated, raw, primitive high. And there's this unspoken thing that it's going to end up in sex that night. So I asked him, said, well, out of your last 20 Tinder dates, how many ended up in sexual activities? He said 20, 20 out of 20, all within, and this is fascinating, within two to three hours of meeting the woman in person. So I said to him, do you see yourself kind of like a Don Juan or like a, uh, are you a love addict? Are you a sex addict? What are you? And he says, I don't know. What he says is that I know that at the end of the day, my life is miserable. I'm alone. I can't sleep very well. I'm stressed all the time. I don't know what a healthy relationship looks like. So I think about what must be happening in his brain, how all the convoluted feelings of the minute he logs on wanting to search for a connection on Tinder, and then the emotional juices, if you will, starting to flow from adrenaline and dopamine and excitement, uh, high sexual libido, combined with anxiety, uncertainty, doubt, trauma. And then he goes and meets a woman, and they meet in you know public space, and within 15, 30 minutes, they're both making a decision on what they want to do over the next few hours. These are the types of stories that we're starting to see more and more. The same fundamental themes, I think, that men and women would quote love addiction are struggling with, I think, are so true at any other form of addictive disorder. Loneliness, avoidance, loss of connection, uh, loss of the sense of usefulness, and really having difficulty figuring out how to find the strength and courage to live a more moderate, uh, temperate, uh, uh, connected uh, lifestyle. So if I'm understanding all this, simply put, we need physical contact. We need emotional contact. We need to be together. It's what makes us humans. And it's the ones that don't have this, that are intensely lonely, 
that find themselves in trouble. Let's take a quick break. In Focus Features film Greta, actress Chloe Grace Moretz plays Frances, a young woman grieving the death of her mother, a loss that leaves her open and vulnerable to a relationship with an elderly widow that is unhealthy, if not pathological. I think loneliness is something that the entire reason why Frances ever would have let a woman like this in, like, she wasn't, you know, happy with the way that her dad conducted himself in her mother's last days. And she pulled away from her father, moved to a new city, out of college, you know, with her best friend who, you know, New York is an exciting city, but if you're not ready and you don't have any kind of steady footing, it's very easy to get kind of slipped up and you do try and, you know, grasp onto things that feel organic and real and um, cozy. And I think the first thing that Greta feels to her is incredibly cozy. She welcomes her in with a hot cup of coffee and they chat. It, it was just, you know, I think a really perfect storm again to welcome in someone that is also dealing with her loneliness. And that loss and loneliness kind of goes hand in hand and creates a cavity in someone that they need filling. Lonely Hearts Tales are pretty common. We've all felt alone. But unlike Francis and Greta, we don't all let that feeling control us. Abby loved being in a relationship. Remember, she pursued Will in the beginning. But when things soured, she wanted out. She thought she made it clear, but that message failed to land on Will. Here's Abby. The only way I could get to him was to tell him exactly what he wanted to hear. I told him I would think about it and would call him later to meet up and talk. I was confused because he was just so happy. He hugged me and it made my skin crawl. I've got her back. I've got Abby back. Things are gonna go back to normal. I just freaked out when he kissed my forehead. I didn't know what to do, but I didn't call the cops. I just called my mom and I sat there staring at the door, just waiting for her to come home, hoping that Will wouldn't show up. If I could just be in the room with her, if I could just talk to her, everything would be fine. Everything seemed like it went back to normal. I thought we were back together again, but then she just ghosted me. And then I realized that she was lying to me. My mom kept asking me, trying to get me to talk, and I just said, I want to go home. I want to go home. I was checking my phone constantly. She was all I ever thought about. She's all I ever wanted. Everything took a back seat to Abby. Is Will's behavior considered pathological? We use that word loosely, but what does it really mean? Dr. Katahakis explains. Well, I think that the easiest way to think about pathology, I mean, it is a medical word and it's typically associated with diagnosis of disease of some sort. But when I think of pathology in psychological terms, I think of problematic. If something is pathological, it is problematic. Um, And that means, again, it's creating messes in your life or in somebody else's life. Okay, we can assume that Will's behavior is pathological. He's lost his job, he's not eating or sleeping regularly, and he's cutting off communication with friends and family. He's a mess. So, psychologically, what does that mean? There's a distortion also 
um, psychologically in people that we consider pathological. So they either lack empathy um, and that makes them, you know, antisocial or they are completely self-obsessed in some way or they're dependent on other people and they can't function. But there is a problem there um, that's pervasive. It's not a problem like you have a problem and then you take some action and you fix or change that problem. Um, people admit feeling like it's just the way they are. They can't do anything about it. For someone suffering and in pain like Will, professional guidance or therapy would not only help him heal, it also help him live a healthy reality and leave behind the unhealthy fantasies. As you're about to hear, Will wasn't open to help then. And Abby... She's frightened. I stayed with my mom for a couple weeks, but Will knew where her house was, so I didn't feel safe. It ripped my heart out. I would go to sleep and have nightmares about losing her, and then I would wake up and be in a living nightmare because I've lost her. I couldn't even, I couldn't even put it out of my thoughts while I was sleeping. That's how bad it was. He did this to me. I couldn't go anywhere. I was living in fear. I thought that I could get rid of my pain with a bigger pain. Why would he send these to me? He sent me pictures of it. It was horrifying. I made excuses to cover up what I was doing, pretend that it was a knife that slipped or something like that. And I thought that I was at the end of this, but it didn't stop. He needed help, real help. Not me. If you or someone you know is struggling like Will, there's help. You can get information on mental health treatment services in your area by going to samhsa.gov or calling 1-800-662-HELP to speak to someone. Free, confidential, 24-7, 365 days a year. You're not alone. On the next episode of Obsession. I mean, if you love someone, you don't terrify them. You don't terrorize them. So I would take issue with the notion that this is obsessive love. It's obsessive behavior, that's for sure. But I don't think love has anything to do with it. This podcast was created on behalf of Focus Features by LA Times Studios and does not reflect the views of the Los Angeles Times, nor does it involve the editorial or reporting staffs of the Los Angeles Times.